You're listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. Here are your hosts, Fran Chismar and Tom Knezic. Welcome back to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast presented by Pinelands Nursery. I am Fran Chismar. And I'm Tom Knezic, and welcome to episode 146. And we have another guest that we can't wait to talk to uh, today. So, I can't believe we didn't leak this. Like, yeah, I can't believe we didn't say it. <laughs> You're right. Or maybe I thought it was too good to be true, and I thought I would jinx it yeah. if – if if I said it, yeah. Too so early. and I was gonna say there, Fran is. So I'm not gonna let Fran talk too much before <laughs> I just get right into the introduction, <laughs> and um and say that we're really honored to be joined by Dr. Daniela Shebitz, uh from from Keene University, and uh, and like we've already recorded this, and you guys don't know this, but like our next episode, Dr. Shebitz has a really unique story of how she got into ecology and the uh, ecological world as well, so. I want you to start there and kind of say, what got you interested in all this and how did you get to where you are now? What was your path? Hmm. Thanks. Well, first, I'm really excited to be here. I listened to you guys for so long and I'm just honored to be a part of your podcast and um, really looking forward to this. Uh, so I, I've been in New Jersey now 17 years, which is insane to even think about. Um, I grew up just, well, I'm from the Lower East Side of Manhattan and then grew up mostly north of there um, in the suburbs. Uh and became very disconnected from nature as a kid, as so many of us do. And then um, I had a mother who found herself really frustrated with all the litter that she was surrounded by. And so she would spend her weekends picking up litter on the side of the highways, on the side of the roads. And I was just always so embarrassed by her, which is an awful <laughs> thing to say, because now I'm that mother who's crazy on the side of the roads picking up litter. Um, but yeah, so she uh, she really kind of put the bug in my ear that said, this is not okay. Um, and of course, living in suburbia and growing up as a child of the late seventies, eighties and watching the, the little patches of forest that remained kind of be cut down to turn into housing de uh, developments really traumatized me as a child. So, um, I also went through a, a middle school crazy period where my, you know, life was happening to me as a teenager. And so my family's answer was, well, let's travel and let's explore to get to, so that I didn't think the whole world revolved around middle mm -hmm. school. Um, and so in doing so, I got to see different cultures around the world and my family's Israeli. I spent a lot of time in Israel, um, growing up and, um, really got to see how different cultures interacted with their environment in a different way. And so by eighth grade, I remember writing a report that said I wanted to be a biology professor when I grew up. I wanted to also work for Greenpeace and save the whales and basically become an eco-warrior. Um, and that really kind of has been my path <laughs> since then. So, uh, yeah, so I've been kind of bringing forward uh, this uniting love of both humanity in terms of um, cultures that really understand and respect the environment and also the environmental conditions as well, specifically plants. And so really kind of uniting those in the world of ethnobotany. I, I find it interesting. I believe the story was when we had Jason on from NYRP. That's kind of how Bette Midler started. <laughs> NYRP was picking up trash along the side of the road and being so <laughs> upset about the amount of litter on the roadsides and that kind of 
yeah, kick-started yeah. her. It's it's just so nice hearing those stories. Um, can you talk a little bit about what you do at Keene University and what you specialize in, what your yeah, specialties would, are? Absolutely. So right now I am the a chair and a professor, or the chair and a professor in the Department of Environmental and Sustainability Sciences at Kane. Um, so I am by training, I'm an ecologist, uh, specifically also restoration ecology and ethnobotany. So um, my background in research has to do with how indigenous cultures use plants for, um, well, Actually, my master's and PhD were with basketry plants um, and trying to restore culturally important landscapes using traditional land management practices. Um, And so I have really built a career kind of looking at the effects of land management on plant diversity for, you know, for the positive um, and also for the negative. And so looking at that interactions between people and their landscapes. Um, and so now that I'm living in urban New Jersey, a lot of my work has to do more with trying to re- foster those connections between people and their urban environments. So, um, a lot of it comes back to urban agriculture or, um, right now I'm working with a amazing nonprofit nearby groundwork Elizabeth on mm-hmm. planting yeah. microforests um, in the area and kind of looking at how we could densely plant forests to foster native biodiversity, but also to help with stormwater absorption and um, and pollutants and air quality. So my work more in the urban parts of New Jersey has to do with kind of reconnecting people with nature. But I also have been spending a lot of time over the past 17 years in the Pine Barrens um, and working on um, a lot of the restoration of the Atlantic white cedar swamps there, monitoring those changes, and also um, on fire adapted systems, playing with you know some of those fire adapted plants too. So I'm all over the map, but I <laughs> fully have fallen in love with New Jersey, and um, and so I'm trying to find all of the different ways that I could kind of connect people with their environments, no matter where we are. One of the beautiful things about being based in New Jersey is all the different types of areas mm-hmm. that you're dealing with. You have plenty of urban areas. You have the Pine Barrens. You have uh, mm-hmm. marsh and salt marsh ecosystems. You have Ridge and Valley up in the, the water gap. Uh, yeah. You have Piedmont. You have Coastal Plain. It, it's And maybe the most important part of that is that they're all within like a two hours drive. Yes. it's You aren't having to go – well. All the way exactly. across the state here is like yeah two three hours away yeah. <laughs> instead of, of ten like you get to have out west. So, so I I yeah. would imagine and and this is something that as we've progressed with the podcast and I guess I've been more enlightened that I struggle with is what is land management? You're you're dealing with urban ecosystems. You're dealing with the Pine Barrens. I and then it, when you go through history of how how people have managed land, I don't really know what proper land management is at this point. And I would imagine a lot of people feel that way. Um, mm. as, as humans, do we know what land management is? Do, do we have a grasp on that? Is, is it something that we knew and we lost or is that something that we have to relearn as things change? Wow. Um, terrific question and very important. Um, and Understanding that we now have 8 billion people on our planet um, and we have many who do identify as, well, we have, I I think it was something like 300 million that are identifying, and don't quote me on that, so uh, as indigenous in some respect. Um, And so a lot of indigenous cultures um, have evolved in the same areas where they are now and 
have a sense of land management as one in which they connect to the land in a way that is respectful and in a way that is more of a relationship, um, a, a sort of a, as a familial relationship, as opposed to one in which humanity dominates over the land. Um, and so if we ask, have people forgotten or, or if we even know what land management is nowadays, I have to say it's very different depending on the society and where you are, both in the world and who you are interacting with. Um, I'm I'm inherently an optimist, so I do want to think that it's not all lost, that our knowledge of how to live and work with the land sustainably is not lost. But I think it really depends on how we perceive it, right? So are we perceiving the land as um, something that is there for us in only in terms of natural resources, right? So is the water our resource? Is the soil our resources? Are the plants our resources? Or are they our relatives? And are we there to kind of foster their health? And likewise, are they there to foster our own health? And so um, that really does dictate how we manage that land. And there are many ways in which sustainable land management is still practiced now, right? So even um, regenerative agriculture is a way of sustainably managing land. Restoration as an amazing field of science is also a great way of of integrating land management and making sure that you're increasing native biodiversity. Um, But in a lot of it, unfortunately, what we see is not at all that, right? So a lot of it is sort of that, that, creation or the idea that the land is there for us um, and it's very anthropocentric in that respect as opposed to ecocentric and so we're really kind of unfortunately shifting way too much into the anthropocentric world where we believe that we are at the center of the universe um, and we don't realize how inextricably linked our own health is to the health of our environment. And I think you know in in a small way you know you you want to bridge that gap in a small way we like to think that the podcast helped people on that journey to get there not that it Mm -hmm. it solves everything for them but it helps them take the first step um Mm -hmm. and i I apologize if i I get too deep right off the (laughs) get-go um (laughs) you know i you know what you said i know it can can differ theories of land management based on culture and i guess one of the more unique things about being in the united states is it's a melting pot of cultures and it makes me right. wonder if it's more of a gap in culture or if it's a gap with uh, a oneness with nature. And I was curious mm-hmm. with your experience with land management throughout the world, if it differs in other countries compared to this one. Wow. Okay. So first of all, I do want to say just because someone immigrates to an area does not mean they lose that connection to yeah. the land, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think it's really – as I have moved around the country and around the world, like I think it's – I think it's very important to know that you could inherently take that love and connection with our planet with you. Um, so that is a really important point that I think I just want to kind of say we we do live in New Jersey, which is one of the my, most diverse states in our union. And we definitely have people from all over the world. And how amazing would it be if we all kind of treated our own environment with the same lens of respect? Mm-hmm. Um, so. Uh, I will say, so one of the things that I've been working on lately is a reflection of my time in Costa Rica. I was fortunate to do about 10 years of research in Costa Rica um, in the northern zone, which is just by Nicaragua's border. And um, Costa Rica is a country that does not have a military. So they've invested all their money into education and into the environment. Um, 
But somewhere in, in the 1970s, they were they were looking at a country that had lost 75 percent of their forest. And what they decided to do is to kind of bring back um, as much forest as they can through a, through a few different strategies. Right. So one is let's protect as much as we can of the old growth forest. So they set up this system of protected areas and they basically said, OK, let's let's have that be protected. We need kind of like our national park system. Um, they also put in something called payments for ecosystem services. So they actually said we have to give people that financial incentive to try to keep their forest so that we don't cut it down. So why don't we pay them for the services that the environment is providing if it's left intact. Because you can imagine if you are an, an, a farmer in Costa Rica who wants to plant pineapple, you are losing a lot of money if all of a sudden you can't clear that forest. And so they actually paid landowners for the values that their environments were having intact as, as intact systems. And then the third is through ecotourism, right? Mm-hmm. So they also are making a lot of money to save the forest through those eco the the zip lining and all of the wildlife adventures and all that. So those different approaches really works to kind of keep those, the forests intact. But what my work is looking at is, but what about the land management that we need in there? So I work with um, local communities who have been in this area for a while and they need to continue to harvest their medicinal plants from these forests. Um, and some of the forests are not protected under the protected areas um, umbrella because they're, young forests. They're growing up after agricultural um, use. And so we call those secondary forests. And sometimes those secondary forests have a lot of medicinal use, um, a lot of medicinal plants. They have a, actually a, sometimes even more diversity than the prime, than the older growth forests um, for some of the plants that are used. So I think it's very important to incorporate land management into the protective strategies, right? So I'm trying to work to try to advocate for secondary forests to get just the same protections as primary forests. Um, And it's a little bit different there because they don't have the invasive species that we have in so many of our secondary forests. But the idea that you can incorporate local knowledge and medicinal value into trying to develop these conservation or land management strategies, I think is really important. Um, So that's uh, Costa Rica is a great example of a country that's doing so much right and still has a way to go. Mm -hmm. Um, But there are places all over the world where land management is um, really in a form of abuse of our of our of humanity and of our planet too. And so um, we need to learn from each other in a way that is cross boundaries and kind of looks at the world as a whole. All right. I'm about to go all over the place. <laughs> I knew it was coming, friend. <laughs> Can't you see my yeah. look in my yeah. face? I know uh, – I just wanted to mention real quick because you mentioned about uh, people being paid to – preserve i think it was i I can't remember the name of the awards it's the one done by the royal family where they they award i think Mm -hmm. a million dollars to five different five different thing five different causes every year globally towards uh providing good ecological fun i think it was like peru was one of the recipients because they were paying residents to do uh restoration on their own properties so trying Amazing. to get them – where they profited from doing the right thing, and they put together a great system that, that allowed pe- – and I think it was Peru, but I can't remember, which I just thought was a really good way of thinking yeah. out of the box to get people mm-hmm. invested in it. But um, yep. when you're talking about old growth, it, it made me think of a conversation that Tom and I have had, and I, I agree it's important to protect old growth, and you kind of touched on this. But like we're always talking about succession and successional forests and how important that is. So 
do you have to focus on all of that and not just one? Is it is it wrong to just do old growth? Like not saying they're not important, but you need that succession for diversity. So I, yeah, I, brilliant, brilliant question. And um, one that is very location specific, um, right? So in a place like New Jersey, we have very little old growth left. And I think here we need to definitely make sure that we conserve what is there, what, what remains. Um in a place, so again, I'm, now I'm going to travel to a different part of the world where I work, <laughs> right. um, which I, I w- worked on my doctorate in the Pacific Northwest, which um, on the Olympic Peninsula of Washington State. And um, my work was with uh, the Native Americans who lived there, the Quinault and the Skokomish, and trying to reconstruct the historical land management of that area. So how did they maintain um, a whole matrix of different stages of succession, right, in order to get the resources that they needed in order to foster diversity there, um, and what effects did that have on the environment? So to answer your point exactly, Fran, I think it's that we, um, there are places there where people historically burned prairies frequently every year or two. Um, and then there were savannas intermixed in there where the burning was not as frequent. Trees were allowed to grow. Um, and so the trees that were there grew very, very big and kind of provided shade. And from those savanna type of habitats, they would get nuts um, and some and provide shelter for a lot of game animals. In the prairies, People collect a lot of basketry plants, a lot of medicinal plants and food plants. Um, and then there were forests where they didn't burn um, at all. And so those provided refuge and different habitats and different um, different resources. And so you really kind of look at the idea that you've got this mixture of resources. And I, I don't like necessarily the word resources, but in this case it is, right? Different food crops, different medicinal crops, different basketry plants, and different habitats for different game that they were able to get from these different stages of succession and did so in a way that we were able to see from aerial photographs from the early 1920s that were taken of this area. So we were able to piece together history by looking at these photographs and saying, wait, we know that without anthropogenic or human set fires, this would all be forest. Mm-hmm. And here we're seeing clear forests that are mixed with prairies and mixed with savannas. And so there was this diversity of habitat types. Then um, those existed until uh, people were forcibly removed off of their land in the 1850s onto reservations in the area and burning became illegal. And mm-hmm. so they weren't allowed to um, maintain these habitats through burning anymore. And with that loss of burning became a loss of diversity in the area. Um, and so part of my work was to try to reconstruct the landscapes that were there um, and to try to bring back some of the savannas um, specifically. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. It's, do you think that there's still a good understanding of – obviously there's there's groups and, and, and education on why prescribed burns are – important for diversity and other things do you think we truly understand that that the need of that and it's being used as much as it should be or do you think that Mm. it's still being being wielded with like a like a like a soft touch like we can do it here like it's not yeah are we afraid of this is is this something yeah, of course we're afraid of fire, but I also am a little bit of a pyromaniac. I think it's kind of exciting to kind of see it return to places where it's been, you know, withheld. Um, yeah, I think it's 
It is scary because we're living in a different type of climate than we than was historically here, mm-hmm. right? And so we are not 100% sure how fire is going to act on our landscape now when we start to reintroduce it. But we have to. Um, so prescribed fire is an important part of restoration now uh, for so many reasons. One, we have a lot of... Um, we have a lot of habitats that have evolved with frequent fires that were low in severity and fire was withheld. So by when, when the Europeans settled here, they were petrified of fire, right? Mm-hmm. We were, and no, there were any fires that were there were immediately put out and they considered the Native Americans to be savages who were trying to burn their land um, and didn't understand that. Mm-hmm. So actually Smokey the Bear or Smokey Bear was the most successful advertising campaign in U.S. history. Yeah. Right. Because all of a sudden people know, oh, wildfire must be awful because Smokey is telling me so. And people got the whole country on board and trying to put out wildfires. Um, And so we've done such a good job of suppressing fires that now we've seen decades of brush building up, getting, you know, falling on falling in things that should have been burning regularly are no longer burning. So we have decades of dead wood that has accumulated in our in our forests um, where they used to maybe be much more open as in a savanna habitat. And so what we're seeing is a different landscape, right? So yes, I think that reintroducing fire to those landscapes that evolved with fire is very, very important. But we have so much more understory now. We have so much mm-hmm. more dead wood and we have drier and hotter conditions. And so there's a whole science uh, that's trying to look at how do we do that? How do we reintroduce the prescribed fire in a way that can foster biodiversity and allow it to return and foster recycling of nutrients, but at the same time does not risk catastrophic wildfires being, you know, kind of taking over as we're seeing, unfortunately, so often. Just to emphasize your point there, I have um, friends of mine, I'm not naming names or people I've talked to, I should should say, I'm not going to name names, but they say that uh, Smokey the Bear is Probably one of well, I shouldn't say probably. They've said is the worst thing to happen to some native habitats um, yeah. across the country. Just that that yep. absolute fear of fire, and even uh, I jokingly when my my wife, son, and I went camping over the summer, she wanted to take a picture of like the Smokey the Bear sign, and my son at the end, I'm like, no, he's not allowed to. We can't support. We can't support him. I'm, I'm getting him a Smokey the Bear stuffed uh, animal. I think we to still took with. a picture. <laughs> gotten a whole slew of smoky bear like (laughs) you know i i think it's funny because we talked about like how like we've moved away from land management in that way but technically we've unintentionally practiced land management in a negative way by Mm -hmm. introducing things that have affected our forest when you think of uh the loss of chestnuts and now the loss of uh ash trees and we're having issues with oaks in new jersey and and you think of elms and all these pathogens and diseases that we brought in from other countries, they've had an impact on our forest too, and we've changed them whether we want it to or not for the positive yes. or negative. Mm-hmm. So it's it's silly to think that we shouldn't manage natural areas because everything needs stewardship. Um, yes. So we have all these changes that occurred whether we wanted them or not. I guess for, for our listeners that, that don't know, if you had to give like a, a five-minute – college presentation on succession (laughs) for someone to understand it. How would you describe it? So succession is the recovery of an ecosystem after a disturbance, right? So that could happen after a very 
uh, low severity disturbance. So let's say you have a storm or even a clear cut that kind of takes away the trees, um, right? And so you're left with very fast growing grasses and some some for, or some flowering plants like forbs, we call them, right? So, uh, so you've got some early successional plants there um, that eventually maybe a couple, maybe a decade, maybe two decades is going to be replaced by shrubs. And those shrubs will have um, berries and it will start to attract different animals there that need those berries. Um, and then some fast growing trees will be in there as well. And then those fast growing trees will eventually be replaced by slower growing trees that are more shade tolerant. And kind of with that, they change the entire landscape into a forest. Now, all along there, it's not just the plants that are changing. It's the soil nutrients that are changing. You have nitrogen fixing plants that come in soon after a disturbance to try to reintroduce nitrogen to the soil. Um, you have a, a whole different of soil biota that are there and you have a lot of other animals that kind of need those different stages of succession. So you definitely do have some birds that like early successional habitat and some birds that love late successional habitat. Um, and also some, some mammals as well in each of those stages. So that's after a, a light disturbance. We call that secondary succession. Um, if there's a severe disturbance, uh, like let's say a catastrophic wildfire that destroys all of the soil um, down to the bare mineral, bare rock. Um, and there's no soil left. There's no seeds left in the soil. Um, and this is what we're seeing all over the West where fires are just getting so severe right now is that those sites might not ever recover. Or if they do recover, it will take hundreds of years to get back to that level of diversity that was in those forests. Um, and so what you're looking at is you have to first build up the soil, right? And then you have to kind of, and that takes the process. And then the nitrogen fixers have to come in and you, that is called primary succession. Um, primary succession isn't only a response to catastrophic wildfires, but it's also whenever you have new exposed soil. So maybe glaciers have receded. Maybe you have a lava that ha from a volcano that has melted. So you really have to start over. And what you're looking at is a process that, process that takes very, very, very long. Um, we see secondary succession all over New Jersey, right? So when trees come down because of a storm, um, when there are, you know, uh, so when people clear cut and they walk away or when when there's an agricultural field, a farmland that and becomes abandoned, what happens there is succession or changes in the environment. Um, but the, when the soil is intact, it could happen pretty rapidly. One of the things, one of the jobs of restoration ecologists and what you guys help out with so much at the Pinelands Nursery is to try to accelerate succession, right? So how can we not just wait for it to take 100 years or 200 years? How can we plant the species that are going to be needed in each stage of succession so that they could kind of be there to help mm -hmm. um speed succession along, right? And so we're not losing a lot of that habitat in the meantime. And so uh, so if people abandon their their agricultural fields, right? Yes, and we leave it alone, it could take a while to turn that into a forest. But um, if you're an ecologist and you want to start bringing back some of those older forests, you need to help a little bit, right? Yeah. So we have to plant in the, those trees. I feel like I should... I should. I deserve a diploma now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so... I was going to say, what do you say to people who, who they say, hey, you know what, we should just, just let nature take its course. Let's, 
we have this forest or we have this farm field, just let it be and then let nature do what it wants. Do you think that's the right approach or, or, or what, what would you say to them? I think, again, it depends, right? There are places where that might happen um, where you wouldn't be overloaded with invasive species and kind of, I want, I do have to say, actually, if invasive species come in, succession could be completely stopped mm-hmm. in many areas, right? So if you do leave a farm field and you say, let's say what happens, and then a whole bunch of invasive species come in instead of our natives, they might make it so that no native trees could even you know, mm-hmm. become established in that area. They could alter the soil chemistry. They could um, change the soil nutrients. They could change everything about the site. And so it depends where you are. If you are in New Jersey and you just let nature take its course, chances are pretty good that we're going to be seeing a whole mess of invasive species there. Um, and so as a restoration ecologist, I want to think that, yes, it, it would be great if we could save all this time and money. But at the same time, not only would, you know, we'd be out of jobs. More importantly, I think the, the places would just stop. Um, mm-hmm. I think that we would not see a lot of places in especially more urban areas of New Jersey have any semblance of native plant diversity, especially when you bring deer into the mix as well. Right. And so um, a lot of the areas have to be protected and nurtured and um whether it be soil amendments, whether it be erosion control, whether it be removing invasive species and planting natives, all that kind of is all hands on deck for places that we think have, has the potential to have great ecological value. You know, it's funny. We we just talked to a guest that's not going to air till after we air yours, so no one's heard it yet. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, I, I didn't even think about it. He was talking about restorations in Wyoming. And I was thinking, oh, well, you don't have an issue with invasives. He's like, no, even though this is all sage, Mm -hmm. if you disturb the ground, the first thing that's going to come in is invasive cheatgrass and you completely lose. And I I didn't even – didn't even occur to me. I'm thinking, oh, you don't have the same issues. And he goes, oh, no, we have the same issues. It's just in a different different scenario. Different species, different – yeah, different habitats. It's yeah. 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 Unfortunately, invasives are universal right now, right? So yeah. even it's even though they're different species, they're because people travel all over the world all the time, we're constantly transporting seeds, we're constantly transporting things are getting um traded in places where they should not be and all we're, we're losing habitats everywhere. So let's let's take it one step deeper. <laughs> if we haven't already no gotten deep enough. So I think in order to kind of comprehend land management, land management, you have to have some sort of connection with nature itself. And and I kind of asked you this about land management, but it goes the same with human connectivity. And it's – I know we kind of talked about different cultures just because you leave. My wife is from uh, a farm in southern Poland, and she has, a, okay. she has a connection with nature that I'll never have even though I work with it and appreciate it. It's, it's different. Like, and yeah. it's just I think upbringing and, and how she, she was brought up with the land. Yep. Is the secret of human connectivity lost? Kind of like I look at the ancient pyramids that people built and no longer know how it happened. Are, is, are we so far removed from natural land? And some of it was done by our own government you know, uh, to disconnect mm-hmm. people from, from nature. Have, is, is so much of that lost that we can't rediscover parts of it? So again, I'm an optimist who would hope to think not. Um, but 
it is very easy to become disconnected. It's too easy, right? So looking at people who grow up in rural parts of the world, um, they understand inherently that link, right? So if they're not getting what they need from their environment, their own health is going to suffer. Um, in urban areas, we've lost so much of that. And again, my job as a professor is to try to remind people that our own existence is completely linked to how we are treating our own land. So I have to think it's not lost. Um, and I have to think that it's our job to try to bring it back. But it's easy to shut it down, right? It's easy to kind of just go about your day worried about what is it directly in front of you um, and understand that, look, I know the forest is somewhere out there. I know that people might be cutting it down. But for me, I have to pay my bills. I have to put my the food on the table at the end of the day. I have to get to this meeting. I have to get to the, run my errands. And so on a day-to-day -day basis, it's so important for people to remember to stop and try to under try to reconnect with their communities, whether that's their ecological communities or their people communities or just their own self. Right. Um, and so I think um, I think I want to believe that it's not lost and that traditional land management is not lost. And I know it's not in much of the world here in New Jersey. It takes an effort. And it really, I, I do see that I'm inspired by some of my students. I just before here was coming to, it came from another talk that um, we have people talking about environmental justice issues in Newark and how the incinerators there are affecting, you know, asthma rates and humanity's survival rates. And right. So you can imagine in a place where people can't even breathe the air without worry that mm, they're, they're feeling disconnected from their environment completely. But yet there's never been a better time to explain that connection between humanity and their environment as there is now. I, I think – and I agree with you. I, I think Tom and I are both optimistic even though I, I feel that there's a percentage of, of people in this world that sacrifice their connectivity for the sake of progress, I guess you would say. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But I've met so many incredible ecologists just in the state of New Jersey alone. That I know can make a difference and all those little things make a difference and it's just a little reminder. Um, what is – what are some some ways that people can help rediscover their connection with, with nature? What are, what are some tips that you would give to, to help people back on the way to well, that? Well, I am – I think about this question all the time. Um, how do we reconnect, right? How do we help to establish that reconnection? And I will say, maybe it's because of my mom, um, but it's also because of me and where I live. Uh, I love hosting river cleanups and park mm -hmm. cleanups. Yep. Um, and I think just going out. So I want to be able to say, just go for a hike. But you know what? People are not as inclined to go for a hike if they've never gone for a hike before. But if you say, hey, come to our park cleanup. It's a park where they've been for so long and they've been noticing garbage on the, on the ground for so long. Being a part of a cleanup, of a community-based cleanup, is really, really important for so many reasons. One, well, you're making a difference on the ground. But two, you're seeing how your actions directly affect your park or your river, whether it's for the better or mm -hmm. for the worse, right? So I think understanding that you have a power and a responsibility to clean up your mess um, is one of the most important lessons that could also foster that 
wake up that could basically say, okay, I am part of this environment. Um, yeah, so that is, I would say take part in cleanups. Uh, and if you can't find a cleanup, I'll send, we have 20 of them going on, <laughs> yeah. right? So they're, they're everywhere. And I think that that's a very important move. Um, New Jersey Clean Communities is a great group that just actually coincidentally moved to Kane's campus and they have funding um, for each town in New Jersey to have cleanups to enforce uh, litter abatement to try to stop people from littering to begin with and to really or and to educate people about litter um so that's one number two is yes to go outside to hike to explore to do something that's fun that really allows you to make your own observations because it's one thing to be taught and to watch documentaries but it's another thing to experience it yourself um so whether that means going for a very slow walk around your neighborhood park or whether that means going getting lost in the woods um and kind of hoping to you know find your way home after a couple of hours or three hours but really kind of not caring where the trail takes you. I think everybody needs to try to find a way that they feel comfortable connecting with nature, um, but also to learn, right? So just keep an open mind and see that there are, as you said, that we have so many terrific ecologists in New Jersey. I am blown away by that. Um, and so there are so many people who have lessons to share and perspectives to kind of, that could enrich everybody's lives. That yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah. I was going to say like cleaning up is really such a great way to to one get outside and, and experience nature but also say oh yeah we really need to to <laughs> not let our trash around yeah. it's um it's one of the things I, I just saw before we started uh duke farms had put up a post about um deer antlers and uh i know this sounds crazy yeah. that i'm talking about deer <laughs> antlers, just talk about trash yeah. one of the things i always like to do because and i talked about it on the podcast before i'll go out and look for dropped deer antlers it's called shed hunting but there's like a movement going on now when people do that, say, hey, pick up the yeah. trash you see while you're doing this. And like, I think mm-hmm. the hashtag is called like Tines and Trash. So I started doing that and <laughs> I found like two deer antlers over three years, but I've picked up 10 or 20 bags of trash <laughs> along the yes! way. And yes! I'm getting outside, awesome. I'm like experiencing nature. Yeah. I'm, I'm, and like, I, the stuff that you pull out of like the wackiest yep. places yeah. too, like you're in the middle of the woods and there's just all of a sudden this beach chair that's been there for who knows <laughs> know. how long. Yeah. It's like how I mean, did we have found it all. Yeah, how did this get here? How? Where, and <laughs> actually, um, it's a uh, it now it's Davy Tree, right? Amy yeah. Green, yeah, um, who's been on the podcast, but her former company, they had a, I think they still have a shelf. Of all like the weird and wacky stuff, like they old found toys it's, like, and all these like doll heads and <laughs> yeah. all this wacky stuff that they find. It's a little creepy at these yeah. restoration yeah. sites, yeah. and it's just it's yeah. at the end of the day, it's trash that ended up there. Yeah. But, it reminds me of the stuff yeah. in Sid's room in Toy yeah. Story, like, <laughs> yeah. it's, like oh, that yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, but that's I guess what yeah. I'm getting at. It doesn't matter if you're like that's just how I do it. But even if you're just yeah. taking a hike or, or just yeah. say, hey, you know what, yeah. I'm going to check out the. It's a great way to make friends too. Yes. I can't. I think it was. Um, one of our former coworkers who her husband, I think made like a whole group of friends because he was at a park and just started picking up trash on his own. Exactly. And then all these other people said, Hey, what, what are you doing? Oh, I'm picking up trash. And they just started doing it as well. And they got to be yeah, like really I good mean, friends. And yeah. Amazing. It's great. And I, that's an important point, Tom. Like it doesn't have to be an organized event, right? We all kind of might have a hand or two to lend to this. And really when you're walking, all you have to do is bend down to pick up litter as opposed to contribute to it. And I think that that's key. We had a garbage patch. So I live um, by a park that 
people think is clean, right? It's a, it's got a three mile walking loop. Everybody thinks it's relatively clean, but if you look into the woods just a little bit, there's a garbage dam, right? Like there's debris that's fallen. And so a river runs through it and just all of the garbage from miles around just accumulates there. So one day I just like, you know, posted on Facebook. I was like, Hey, I need to tackle this dam. Anyone with me? And we, we had 20 or so volunteers within an hour Mm -hmm. and the whole patch was gone. Um, And so I think that that's really very, very important to kind of just know that it's up to us. All of us can make that difference, right? Whether it's just on our walks or in organized um, events, it's really important to kind of make sure that we clean up our own environment. We always go for a walk through our development on trash night because my wife will pick up trash the whole way and then deposit it in the trash cans. So it's not, she doesn't have to bring a bag. It's like, that's always a big walk night. (laughs) So we can depot, we're on recycling night. So we can, we can do that. Um, I'm going to bring this around to native plants because we always do. Mm -hmm. But before I do, I just want to expand on your call to action that I appreciate your call to action. I kind of feel that everyone has a responsibility, but those that enlighten maybe isn't the right word, but those that know better have more responsibility, and I I love that that you spearhead those. I Tom just recently asked me if I was interested in writing an article for um, a newsletter for someone, and I was like, I don't really have a good idea, and I it it made me think. It, it I reflected upon my time here, and I'm like, you know, I've been here 15 years, and over 15 years, I probably had a hand in supplying 30 million plants to restorations. Wow, but, unbelievable. But if you were to ask my family or friends, like they don't know the nursery I work for, what we do, the projects that we supply, it doesn't mean anything to them. Like wow. it's good, but it doesn't reach them. I, I I preach to the choir with that. Like my colleagues mm-hmm. know and they get it and they understand. But if I mention Doug Tallamy to them, they all know who they are, who he is. But right. They right. don't know him because of the students that he influenced or the research papers that he did or any of this incredible restoration work. They know nature's best hope and mm-hmm. because he managed to reach a larger audience. And I kind of reflect it going, I feel like our best work, even though we've done all this great work, is reaching a larger audience with this podcast. And we mm-hmm. all kind of have I, a responsibility to reach a larger audience. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I just had a conversation with uh, Andrew Bunting, who I had never met before in my entire life. We have him on the podcast. I've seen him four times <laughs> since since then. But um, the director of the Pennsylvania Horticulture. Yes, Society. exactly. And uh, and but I was talking to him and saying, hey, I come to these like plant events and it's just the conversations I'm having about plants are just so way over my head in some cases. And I feel like the dumbest person in the room because all these people know plants way better than I ever could even like dream of knowing them. And then I'll go home or I'll go to uh, uh, another kind of event or like um, I go to a hunting club dinner or a lacrosse game and I'm like, I know more about plants than anyone here. And like, I, I don't even know how to dumb it down enough to talk to them about plants. And it's like, how do we have that big of a gap in, in not just knowledge about plants but knowledge about nature and ecology and restoration ecology and all this stuff and it's like how do you get that circle and when like how do you make it so that people can understand mm-hmm. even what you're yeah. talking about sometimes mm-hmm. um yeah. yeah and actually what you're saying is really it, it's it rings so true to me because i as, as i talk like i <laughs> um i love exploring everything a little bit right yeah. so <laughs> right so i'm not i'm not a, 
completely genius at any one factor of ecology. And so I always have so much to learn from so many people. Whenever I walk into a room, there's mm -hmm. always people who know, especially at a conference or at work, there's going to be someone who, who needs to teach me everything about something that I thought I knew. Um, right. But it's so important to kind of share our own knowledge and our own perspectives. And so I really do appreciate learning from people who become so obsessed with one question or one you know, one system or one methodology mm -hmm. because they could hopefully share it with me. I'll never be a, an expert in that area as they are. But at the same time, I could then communicate that to my own students or to my own friends and family and kind of spread the, the, the ideas and the concepts. And I think there's a very important role that this podcast pays, but also that books that are written for the general public play. Yeah. Um, I was very fortunate. So I, my master's degree was with an amazing woman um, named uh, Dr. Robin Walkimmerer. And she is, when I had her as a professor at SUNY ESF, I, she was tenure track and brand new and I was a brand new student and I was very fortunate to meet her. I knew immediately she was special. Um, I thought I wanted to maybe study whales or animals and then I had one class with her and I was like, nope, I'm a botanist. Um, and she's a Native American and I was like, oh, I'm an ethnobotanist. And then um, and she, once she wrote um, Braiding Sweetgrass, has, which has become an unbelievable book and Times bestseller and uh, won uh, so many awards, um, she was able to take the messages that she brought to the classroom and spread them around the world. Mm -hmm. And now that book is being read everywhere. Yeah. Um, and I'm so proud of her for having that ability to take this unbelievable wisdom and insight and write it so eloquently in a way that really touched people's souls around to the world. Um, and I think that that's key. And that's important for scientists to do. It's important for everybody to be able to do, to be able to communicate um, the importance of their field. And it's not so important to be the best, best, best scientist in your field or the best plant ecologist or the best whatever it is, as as it is so much more important to be able to communicate it to the rest mm -hmm. of the yeah. society. Well, not only did she touch your life, you kind of touched her life because she mentions you in the book. <laughs> so it, it's, yeah. it goes we, we both ways. It, it goes both ways, but that's a perfect example because when I when I have not everyone wants to hear it from from me either, like in my life. And and I was just joking with Tom recently, uh, having our yard a, a certified wildlife habitat. We started getting uh, National Wildlife Federation's Wildlife Magazine, and my wife read it from front to back and was so excited to tell me about these stories. I'm like, you know, this is what we what I do for a living, right? Like I've <laughs> tried to tell you this, but you didn't really you know, she didn't want to hear it from me. But she was fascinated to write it. And I, I've taken that message where every time I have a friend or family member that tells me that they're interested in native plants, I don't talk to them about it. I send them a copy of Braiding Sweetgrass. And I've probably oh, given wow, somewhere between fifteen to twenty copies I've given out. And wow. um I I feel that message will better reach them that way than if I try to tell it. Because for me, it's preaching. Um, mm -hmm. From mm -hmm. the book, it's not. And it's sometimes mm -hmm. like I feel like at least I was able to recognize <laughs> that they don't want to hear it from me. You know, because yeah. my wife's telling me about horseshoe crabs and and red knots. I'm like, yeah, I I, I know, I, I know. I know. <laughs> <laughs> but it's awesome that she's telling you because now yeah. she's excited about it and kind of wanting to pass on the message. It, exactly, and I hope it goes beyond me. I hope she continues mm -hmm. to spread yeah. that message. Um, yep. But okay, back to native plants. <laughs> I'll get us back. So the one thing I love is that 
native plants are a buzzword right now and mm-hmm. and people are planting them and they're thinking about native pollinators and uh, wildlife habitat, and all these wonderful things. And they're doing it to help these things. But I think there's that connection missing that they're also helping themselves. Um, how important are native plants to us as humans? Wow. Um, I will say very. <laughs> um, so – uh very okay so let's look at we could look historically and we could look at it now as well right so historically obviously cultures have evolved with using the plants that were available to them and getting and kind of tended to those plants and to the plants tended to them so um the idea was obviously using plant native plants for medicine for food for baskets for ceremony right and so traditionally there are a lot of uh, of our traditions that have evolved with native plants. Now, what we're seeing is that our native plants are um, important for us in so many other ways. So again, our plants have evolved in this habitat, right? So they are well adapted to our soil conditions, to our climatic conditions, um, to our, to whether they're coastal plants, whether so where whatever their environment is, and so. By having a diversity of plants, we're able to kind of make sure that not only are we taken care of, but the animals around us are as well. Um, One of the ideas that we're working with now are these microforests that are, they're called Miyawaki forests because they're based out of a a planting style that um, is from Japan. And the idea is to take at least 30 different species of native trees and plant them so densely together in in sites that are in urban or abandoned lots. And that way you could basically bring back a lot of our native biodiversity. You could help with stormwater absorption and, you know, and, and clean the air and all that. And so these idea, the idea is that our native plants are going to be able to survive here um, in a way that we well, we want them to, um, but also because they have, they are native to this area, they should be able to. Um, and so we're using this tool um, to kind of try to, again, bring back our native plant diversity to urban areas where we might not have the same native plant diversity that that we did just a few decades ago. And um, so they are very effective at, at, taking care of us in a way that we've abused in the past. Um, and so I think that it's our time and responsibility to try to take care of them now. Um, and that this sort of idea of res- restoration and kind of reinst- reinstalling these native species to places where they are, have been extirpated is incredibly important. Um, now, again, because we are facing overdevelopment everywhere in this state, unfortunately. So, um, yeah, I think they're very important. In addition to all of the ecological functions that they provide for the systems, they're also important because of the services that they provide to us. And likewise, it's our job to serve them. I was unaware of that that process you spoke about until like three or four years ago. One of our clients had a customer that they did this on their private estate. It was someone who had made their fortune in the computer industry and fell in love with this process and completely converted their entire property over in, in Pennsylvania near the, the New Hope area. So it was really oh, interesting cool. to, to learn okay. about it because the, his customer was so thrilled to talk about it and what he yeah. had learned and what he was doing. And to see someone that excited uh, for restoration was really, really fun actually. Yeah. Um, I think one way that we can all 
help with our connection is with native plants in our own yard. Not just nature doesn't have to be somewhere you visit. It can be somewhere Mm – it should be somewhere Mm -hmm. just outside your door. Um, What are some – if you had to name like one plant – native plant for medicinal value that everyone should know or or one native plant for food value look i know it's locally we're talking more in our region like what are if you had to plant one for food and one for medicine what um great question so well first i have a sweetgrass patch outside my house mm-hmm. i have a very yeah. small yard but the first thing we did was we established a, a sweetgrass patch and i love the sweetgrass patch um sweetgrass is mostly again it's it's a sacred plant so for to, to me too but I, so it's not necessarily a medicinal in terms of ingestion although people have taken tinctures of it which i don't um or spray but um but uh, well, I'll go with an, I would love to have elderberry, our native elderberry mm-hmm. on our property. Um, I think it's an amazing antiviral. We saw a boom in it with, with the, oh, yeah. uh, with COVID. <laughs> I think it's awesome. But also I have to say we have almost all of us, if you have any patch of, um, green outside your, in your neighborhood, I'm guessing you have broadleaf plantain there. Um, mm-hmm. Broadleaf plantain is an amazing medicinal plant. It's not necessarily one that we would ever think, but I have gotten stung by bees so many times outside, and all I have to do is reach down and get a broadleaf plantain and crush it up and put it on the sting, and it really works to as an anti-inflammatory, and it helps to heal the wound and to take the pain away, which is amazing. Um, and so I, I think that we often overlook things like dandelions, which are mm-hmm. great sources of food and nutrients um, that are all outside almost all of our homes. Broadleaf plantain as well. Um, so I think we could we could really take advantage by just opening our eyes to what's already there. Um, and then, yes, if we want to plant some native species, there's no shortage of awesome medicinal plants that we could bring in. Awesome. Yeah. I, I love that you mentioned elderberry because any plant that can check off, like you can fry the flowers to eat. You can <laughs> – the medicinal value or the antioxidant values, mm-hmm. you, they're edible, yeah. and you can make a liqueur out of it. Pretty, pretty high <laughs> I mean, on my list. Someone I was talking to <laughs> made a, a pie. Maybe it was in the Facebook group. They made a pie with uh, – with, it was yeah. elderberry mixed with some other berries. But, yeah, it, it sounded really good, something I wanted to try. I feel like it's a – yeah. yeah, great opportunity to get, to, uh, elder, get together. Elder liqueurs next on my yeah. list to make. One of my elder hooch. <laughs> one of my favorite moments of our podcast all time was actually when we asked that question to Sam Thayer or a similar question to Sam Thayer, and his answer was pokeweed because I was not expecting that. Yeah, and he's like, "Oh yeah, it'll grow almost anywhere, and you can like you can cook it, <laughs> and you have to you have you to cook have it. to cook yeah. it to uh, okay. to eat it." But I I'd, I'd always heard it was poisonous. And I guess it is poisonous unless you blanch, blanch it for it. a certain amount of time and then you can cook it different ways. And I tried it this last year. It was really good. And it's like, oh, nice. man, I can just go outside and just find all this stuff I can eat <laughs> like <laughs> yeah. instead of the grocery store. Now, this time of year is a little bit harder. but Well, let um, me ask you this, Tom. Since you have done that, yeah. how has that changed your – I know you have a specific connection with nature due to hunting yeah. and fishing and outdoor activities. How has that changed your connectivity with nature? Oh, it's it's just a lot more fun. I like to, I really enjoy cooking. So that's a lot of it is I love trying new ingredients in different ways. So I have um I haven't made any any gumbo yet. My goal was to either uh hunt enough rabbits or get some like a deer and then make a gumbo with that with the filet powder that I made from sassafras leaves. Um 
but I haven't done it yet. I wasn't very successful. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, no, it just it gives you, like, a different relationship. It's We kind of talked about the importance of native plants to humans, and you really don't have to go back far in U.S. history until, like, that was – you weren't going to Ikea. You were going and making furniture and, and well, your house yeah. and everything. All of your possessions came off the land, and it was either made from plants or made from something that ate plants. Mm-hmm. Um, and now we are so spoiled that, I guess, in realistically, it's all coming. Well, now we have plastic, so that's yeah, that's the cheat code, I guess. But, um, like, if you're getting even particle board furniture it came from plants in a roundabout way now it's been processed 20 different ways where before it was literally you just you were making it yourself a lot of times or a relative or someone in very close proximity was making it for you so it kind of brings some of that back where it's like you have Mm -hmm. that that idea of self-sufficiency even though you're i'm still using butter i got from the grocery store and like all the other ingredients but that one or two things is something i harvested myself but but even even Mm. sam thayer his was born out of like a reason of self-sustainability because he had a bad home life as a child and didn't want to go home and would just find things to eat Mm -hmm. (laughs) in nature but i enjoyed having you uh tom bought uh hickory oil and fruit roll-ups made out of chokeberry and uh all those things are like, why isn't this like just standard? Like, why can't I just go into a store and get this? Or why can't I do this? Like, it's yeah. something you don't see and it seems so unique. But when you have it and you're like, this is really good. Like, I don't understand how we lost this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And it's interesting, though, because oftentimes the connection that you're feeling then when you are going out and you're harvesting your own plants, right? It's not something that you'd necessarily do want to sell to the mass yeah. market yeah. because that could change all the, the ecosystem tremendously and the mm-hmm. plant populations and also that connection. So there's something really special about being able to be sufficient, whether or not it might not be totally self-sufficient, but getting, you know, some ingredients to add to your salad from nature yeah. is amazing, yeah. right? Or to flavor your soup or to do whatever. So I think really kind of making sure that anything, any of that connection could be made um, is pretty pretty special. And I do like hunters have that, right? They have an appreciation for their meat that the rest of us who might have to go to the grocery store and just buy it don't have because you kind of form that relationship with that animal. What is your, and I'm not asking yet what your favorite native plant is, but what is your favorite thing to do with a native plant? Like, is it something that you eat or something that you use for medicine or you craft with? Is there something that you enjoy that where you have a good connection with? I do. So we have, um, I have a, uh, I teach medicinal botany at Kane. And so, um, so I do like making medicine with my students. Uh, we are about to make a healing salve for, with, um, with plants. And usually, you know, I, I could go out in the summer and see if I could find some St. John's wort and kind of collect the St. John's wort, um, you know, and kind of the plantain as well and dry it. And then we make a healing salve out of it. And so the students could kind of see that this is, it, it's something that could we could take from nature, the ingredients and also treat ourselves. And I, I, I really like doing that. So it's not just for me, but it's also sort of part of the education. Um, I think that's really important. So yeah, awesome. I am not as much of a forager as I wish I was because I, um, I always, 
I mean, there are some things, of course, I could forage, no problem. I love wineberries. Wineberries have mm-hmm. to be like my favorite invasive or non-native species. It's pretty awesome um, because they're delicious and you have to eat them right there. You can't just, you know, <laughs> you, can't, you yeah. can't really package them. So um, so I do like like kind of foraging for some ingredients too, but I think that really for me, the fun comes in the medicinal, medicinal yeah. body. Actually, foraging has actually ruined like like the first time I foraged for blackberry, I've never been able to achieve that same taste from a store-bought blackberry. So yeah. every time yeah. I get blackberries, I'm hoping that they taste like that and they never do. And they never do. No. Yeah, I mean it's we it's an invasive the, the Himalayan blackberry is invasive mm-hmm. in Seattle. So I moved here from Washington, from Seattle and Holy cow. Like, I loved that invasive species. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like three amazing berries wherever you go. Uh, it, it, yeah. it's, it's amazing. It's amazing. All right. I'm going to shift <laughs> shift again. And sure. I, I want to kind of talk a little bit just about philosophy since your time in academia. So okay. from the time that you entered academia to today, how do you feel that the practices of land management or sustainability have changed? Um, So I, again, I've been here 17 years um, and I do remember coming in and um, teaching ecology. I was hired to teach ecology for the biology department. And um, I remember saying to my students back in 2006, 2007, that we were going to run out of oil in their lifetime or easily accessible oil and that we had to find another way to power our lives. And nobody believed me. Um, the students were like, you're nuts, right? There's, there's at, at that point, you know, Hummers were coming along soon. Like it was, we were not moving in that direction at all. Um, so it's been interesting to see since then how much more widely accessible sustainable, sustainable designs are and sustainable lifestyles are. Um, I think that I came in as a lone wolf. Again, I moved from Seattle where I was surrounded by people who were really passionate about the environment. And when I moved here, there were two things. One, it wasn't as widely acceptable. But two, I also didn't have that network of ecologists that I do have now here in New Jersey. So I didn't know that I would have a community to kind of pull from. Um, and so I I was pretty sad, but also pretty empowered, right? So I was like, okay, this stinks, but it's up to me to put these recycling bins on campus. And it's up to me to start an environmental science class or program. So we had no environmental programs at all um, at Kane when I started. And so I think we, you know, it's been awesome to have it to the point now where we have a a whole department where we have an I, I'm working with an amazing group of colleagues um, and now environmental science is a major that not only do we offer but almost every university offers it and so I think it's been amazing to kind of see that evolution over the past 17 years um, but we have to I mean we're at the same time I was teaching about climate change 17 years ago and people were not seeing it they weren't able to visualize that it was happening all around them already now Gosh, we're seeing it everywhere, right? We're seeing signs of climate change everywhere, Um, especially here in New Jersey. We could talk about ghost forests along the coastline. We could talk about the fact that it's 60 degrees this week in February, and this is the warmest, you know, unbelievable. The the eight of the 10 warmest years have been, or eight of the warmest years on record have been in the past 10 years. I mean, Mm -hmm. we are surrounded by evidence now, um, whereas 17 years ago, we weren't as much. And so I think... Um, 
there's more of a knowledge, there's more of an inherent concern, but um, I'm also waiting for people to kind of want to dedicate their entire lives to it, right? So I don't want people to kind of just assume that someone else is going to take care of all these problems. It's up to all of us to do that. And so I'm still fighting the fight, uh, but at least now I have a posse with me. How has your student changed over the year, what, what you would consider like your average student? How has that changed? Are they are – they, are they coming in already knowing that this is what they want to do? Are they dipping their toes? Are they more educated already coming in? Has it changed from more male to female? Is, are, you, are you seeing differences in that way? Yeah, that's a terrific, terrific question. Um, so one, we are a Hispanic-serving institution. We have um, a very high proportion of students who are first-generation U.S. Um, a lot of people who come to Kane are the first people in their family to ever go to college. Um, and so there's a lot of pressure on these kids. I'll call them kids, even though they're not kids anymore. But there's a lot of pressure on them to succeed in life. Um, and it used to be the assumption was, and I will say when I started, most people wanted to be doctors or physical therapists if they were in the sciences, um, mm -hmm. because they, they knew that there were, they thought there were jobs there and they wanted to make a lot of money and they wanted to make a big living. I, I think now we're seeing much more of an awareness of the opportunities that there are in environmental science, specifically sustainability in the sense that you, um, we have a lot of students who are now minoring in sustainability, even if they don't want to necessarily go into it. We have a lot of people who are now wanting to incorporate sustainability and environmental science into their jobs. So maybe they're majoring in business or political science or psychology or um, or biology, and they just want to understand a little bit more. Oh, and we have a lot of architecture and design students as well. So I think we're seeing that people generally are understanding that sustainability and environmental science feeds into so many dis different disciplines. You don't have to only major in environmental science. Um, there's an E, I would, I would say there's probably a 60% female to male ratio now. And okay. I think that's been pretty consistent. Um, and uh, what I truly treasure about my profession or about my job here at Kane is that it's an incredibly diverse student population. And I love looking at a classroom of my students and seeing that no one looks alike. I think that's unbelievable. Um, and so in my medicinal botany classes, for example, we each present a class, a, a plant. Every single student has to present on a plant that is important to their own culture. Right. And so they bring in samples of these plants. Uh, they talk about their family recipes. They talk about their treatments. Um, and so they connect their own cultural identity of their plants to the rest of the class. And even if they've been, you know, they, even if their family has been here for a while, they actually interview their parents or their grandparents about plants that are important for them. Um, I think that's it's so much fun. We actually wind up doing assays with them to run it against bacteria and fungi to see if these plants have antimicrobial properties um, and it's kind of empowering for them to see that they could put science behind their family traditions. Mm -hmm. So I think um, my student population is pretty unique uh, and I am incredibly grateful for that. And it always has been. I think now it's a little bit easier to try to convince them to incorporate uh, environmental science into their career paths. I love that. I love hearing that because for the longest time being in it, as long as I have it, that wasn't the case, you know, 35 years ago and right. and that is 
so wonderful to hear that that you're witnessing that mm-hmm. and experiencing and that sounds like a fantastic class i may have to. oh yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah can we audit okay, can we uh, <laughs> 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 so personally for you after being a part of it for now two decades how has your belief in restoration or ecology changed over your your tenure how do you, do you still think of it the same way is it more hopeful yeah. than it was do you feel that we're making progress or do you feel as if like we're 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 not there yet um so regardless how there, regardless how much you love something it can wear you down <laughs> yeah and you know what it's interesting because when i came in my restoration world was all about um well, I don't have a lot of indigenous people here in New Jersey, you know, or at least in this part of New Jersey to work with. And so I wound up focusing on invasive species and that quickly changed. Um, now we're looking at a lot of resiliency planning and a lot of resiliency sort of restoration projects that will help to restore maritime forests, will help to restore Atlantic white cedar swamps, um, things that are in danger because of climate change and um, really play an important role in protecting our native diversity from rising sea levels. And I did not anticipate it happening as quickly as it is. And so I think that that's really one of the biggest shifts has been to see, okay, I can't afford to not address this major threat to our biodiversity and to our coastline and to our society here in New Jersey. Um, And I think that that's really what's happening. Um, I also think that it's been awesome to see how many Groups are uniting, right? So I'm on so many different uh, discussion groups and task forces and boards and things that where people are kind of trying to figure out how to address this, you know, well, climate change or the lack of biodiversity or stormwater or, you know, and flooding issues. So people are really kind of trying to get together um, their shared concerns and do something about it. So we're seeing that more. Unfortunately, it comes because our threats have become escalated over the past two decades. And so we're seeing that we can't afford for ecology to not be applied anymore in this manner. I think mm-hmm. – and, and as you're just another example. I, I feel everyone that we interview that is meant to do this for a living and loves it from the bottom of their heart, and I feel as though this – this profession chose us. We didn't necessarily mm-hmm. choose it. It, it kind of – everyone we talked to has a very interesting story how they got here, and it wasn't necessarily a straight path. Mm-hmm. I don't think anyone we talked to it was a straight path. Oh, no. They all yeah. wanted to do something different first. Yes. I, know, I can't think of anyone – I'm sure there was – we've had, what, 75 guests now or yeah. so. Um, there had to have been someone who was like, oh, yeah, this is what I dreamed of doing forever. It always <laughs> seems like it was like, oh, I went to go do this, and then I met this person, or I had this mm-hmm. life event, mm-hmm. or I had this class, or and yeah. I diverted. And sometimes that diversion is like three or four times. But And then yeah. they're great at it, mm-hmm. and then they're so passionate. You can't imagine this person doing anything other than what they're doing. Yeah. And yes, except I want to interrupt you right there <laughs> yeah. because life is 
if you're lucky, pretty long, right? Yeah. So I'm like, now what do I want to be when I grow up, right? Like, it's like, okay, so now, right? You're constantly like looking for that other sort of excitement area. So it's like, how can I take this, these knowledge, this knowledge and skills and maybe redirect it, right? So I think we all kind of continue to grow. And so I don't want to think of life as having an endpoint once we mm-hmm. finally oh, get yeah. a job, Yeah. especially nowadays. So many people are changing jobs yep. so many times in their lives and continuing to grow throughout their careers. I have a friend who just retired from being a bio- biology professor and is now, you know, working at a spa and loving it. And he's like, this is what <laughs> yeah. I've been needing to do my whole life. Right? So I think we all kind of have to figure out, you know, what stage of life we're in and how do we figure, you know, the best way to kind of be happy now and make a difference now and then use that to kind of propel our future steps. Well, well we joke about this all the time in the office because I know how many years I am away from from <laughs> retirement. Yeah. Like it's it's I'm a lot closer than than it is behind yep. me, you know. Yep. So so what do you want to be when you grow up? That's that's I your know. next question. Big question. <laughs> I don't know yet. Right. I think that's kind of exciting. Right. So what is the next step going to be? There's so many. I don't want to think that you know that this is it. I've done it. Right. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm very content. I'm not looking to leave yeah. it to, to change things. But, you know, with my research, with my you know project areas, there's always more I want to learn about mm-hmm. and I always want to yeah. grow. Oh, yeah. um, and so I don't I think it's exciting to know that there hopefully will be a future where I could explore more opportunities. I think I can speak for Tom in this, too, is that like when we started the podcast, we didn't know that this was like an option. Like we didn't know that it could turn into what it was, and I feel my personal growth as far as you know personally and and as far as in the field of ecology has quadrupled since mm-hmm. since the podcast has started mm-hmm. more so than the previous twelve years here. You know that growth has been exponential in the last three years, and you go, well, what else can yeah. we do to continue that growth and continue Absolutely. that reach and to make a bigger Perfect. difference? Um, you feel like, oh, we can we can do more. Like, mm-hmm. although I don't know, there's not enough time in yeah. there. <laughs> <laughs> You're doing a great job. Yeah. Maybe I, I shouldn't say that in front of my boss that yeah. I, I can do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can do more. I can do more. Bring it on. What what does? I was going to say what does get tricky with all of this, and I'm sure you're in the same boat. Is as we learn more and more about ecology and restoration ecology and ecosystems habitats and how all this stuff works built onto what we already knew it's really hard to to turn a blind eye to it and forget it and it's like Mm -hmm. those conversations i was saying how do you how do you make it so that everyone can understand it's like it's really hard to just talk about the one thing they need to talk about or they or they asking you about without tying it into uh, they're asking, oh, what would be a good native plant for my yard? And then you start talking about invasive plants and then what the, all the damages <laughs> they do and then this and the, like it all adds up. Um, and, yeah, that's one of the things I couldn't see myself in another field because I'll constantly know what's happening here and why it's so important and why we should be working with native yeah. plants or against well, invasive plants. Well, the funny thing was when my wife was reading that wildlife magazine, there was a whole article about roadways for for bobcats – Due to mm-hmm. forest yeah. defragmentation, yep. due to highways, and I was mm. like, "Oh, yeah!" Like, and we ended up in a whole deep conversation of what predators and prey both need to survive mm-hmm. and why it's important. Like, it just went on a whole different, <laughs> different I level, could. you know. And it's like, I'm glad we could have that conversation because if I was just 
going to try to have that conversation there. That, that wouldn't yeah, happen. Yeah. <laughs> hey, let's yeah. talk about <laughs> predator and prey. <laughs> All right. Uh, I'm just for the sake of time. We're at the point yeah. where uh, it's our last question. It's always our last question. It's the most simple yet hardest question that we ask. Mm-hmm. And that is, what is your favorite native plant? Um, native it, to New Jersey, I'm going with turkey beard. Um, it is an amazingly fun lily that lives in the understory of the Pine Barrens. Uh, if you see it most of the year, it looks like grass. So it's mm-hmm. very deceiving that way. And then if a fire comes by, within two years, you've got this amazing display of white flowers that are just unbelievable. Um, I love turkey beard. It is a member of the Xerophyllum uh, genus, and it, the only other member of it is called Beargrass, and it's in the Pacific Northwest. Um, and that's what I did my dissertation research with. Uh, there were huge uh, Beargrass savannas in the um, in the Pacific Northwest, and it's a major basketry plant for the tribes out there. So when I moved here, immediately I called Emil Devito, who I heard was you know you know, the ecos are here and basically said, I need to find this Rospolum species. Do you know it? And he um, showed me this amazing uh, patch of it. And I've been obsessed with turkey beard ever since. You know, when you so, when when you mentioned uh, coming to New Jersey and then meeting other ecologists that you can learn from, he was the name that popped into my head because yeah, I've learned oh my, so much from him. <laughs> <laughs> And I, I, I think I found him totally because of this. I needed, I knew, the only thing I knew about turkey beard, because again, I was obsessed with beargrass for, you know, the four years of my dissertation. So I knew it had a cousin that lived in New Jersey. I knew the cousin lived, meaning turkey beard. I knew that it lived in the Pine Barrens and I knew that I needed to see it. So everybody who I spoke to was like, well, then you need to talk to Emil. Um, and I'm really glad I did. We've been friends for 17 years and he's completely, you know, one of my biggest influences here. Um, but yeah, he still has me saved on his phone as Daniela turkey beard. Because of that. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just looking up pictures. Uh, there's yeah. so many of these plants that I'm not familiar with. I was going to say you, you, you threw us both for a loop because yeah. Tom and I looked at each other yeah. like I don't know this plant and um, now I looked it up and I'm like oh I'm gonna have to go and find this with turkey beard. I love turkey beard it is an amazing plant and I have not been able to grow it from seed so if you guys this is like I people have been able to grow it from seed outside I want to try to grow it from seed um uh, in controlled environments because I want to see if just like its cousin bear grass I want to see if uh, I could accelerate its germination rates by exposing it to fire or to smoke or to ash mm-hmm. kind of signs of fire because it is a fire adapted species just the same way its cousin yeah. bear grass is so um, I'm trying to manipulate it and it's it's a hard nut to break I mean it is it's pretty pretty fun so to, many, it's a big challenge for me so many of those pine barren species which grow obviously so naturally in those conditions are so hard to replicate like uh, mm-hmm. bearberry and sweet fern are very yeah. difficult, you know, but you can go to the pine barrens and see bearberry in large patches mm-hmm. under pines and you're like, oh, this should be easy and it's not. And I'm wondering if turkey beard is one of those things that needs a symbiotic relationship with something else. It's because yeah. if it's, I mean, it's very specific conditions where you're finding it. 
very specific mycorrhizal species all over there. Um, it could very well be. I've tried to grow it in the soil, in the sand of the pine barrens, but in controlled environments, have not been able to. Um, it's rhizomatous, so it does, you know, also grow mm-hmm. through rhizomes, but. It's an amazing plant, and um, I just love that it's so deceiving that people yeah. just assume it's a grass until it flowers, and I just I think that's really kind of fun. I think we all need to go on a field trip. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. All right. <laughs> just and just looking at the the that grass like foliage at the bottom, I feel like I've seen this plant. I just oh, have sure never have. seen it blooming. Um, yeah, I have a spot yeah, and when it blooms, where I'm going to go is- take a look. Yeah, we bloomed. We uh, so with a with the New Jersey Conservation Foundation, we've been um, I've been setting up some research plots and kind of tracking its mm-hmm. flowering rates after fires, and it's just it's awesome when it is on full display. You've got a massive stand of turkey beard, and those white flower puffs are just unlike anything yeah. you've ever seen. Cool, uh, that's Very awesome. Cool. Well, I appreciate you introducing us to a new or not a new native plant, but a native plant yeah. that we were unaware of because mm-hmm. now I will be on a mission to find this plant. So now, <laughs> fantastic choice. So this is, we always kind of end the show with final thoughts. Um, and this is where we hand the floor over to you. You can use the time however you want. If you want to summarize, promote something, mention something that we didn't touch on, you, you're more than welcome. We hand it over. Oh my goodness. I, um, you know what? And I just want to thank you guys because I really think that you're doing such an amazing service by sharing your, your knowledge and your wisdom, but also inviting people to share their own perspectives. And I guess for everybody listening, um, go outside, explore and find people to kind of teach and pass on your passion of nature too, because it's really important that we spread the knowledge and concern for the environment with everybody else. Thank you. I appreciate that. Although I feel like we're really just having our guests pass on their knowledge. I feel more like <laughs> Alec Trebek. Yeah. You know, like yeah. he's not winning Jeopardy, but he's a good host. <laughs> yeah, he definitely left his mark, and that's really right. important. Yes. So, Tom, do you want to go or you want me to go? Um, yeah, I can go first, friend. Sure. Um, right. First, I need to say happy anniversary, friend. Happy anniversary to you. This is our three-year three anniversary. It is our three-year uh, well, anniversary. Tomorrow, well, tomorrow being Saturday, the day yes. after Friday when this releases, is yeah, our three-year anniversary of doing this? Well, I was going to do it on the buzz. I have a, a special drink for us. To yeah, have. I did it sooner. So All right. I, beat, well, <laughs> I beat you to it. I'll still have the well, drink. thank you. But, have, happy then, anniversary. Um, my real final thought this time is uh, is right after the Super Bowl, we were talking about like football and, and coaching trees yes. and all these – and now I think this episode and then our next episode are like kind of the start of some of yeah. these these coaching trees. Jeez. I guess we had that with Stanley Temple too, where he's yeah. in the Aldo Leopold coaching tree and and the Rachel Carson, yeah, the Rachel Carson <laughs> coaching, coaching tree. tree. And then uh, yeah, so but you're in the the Dr. Robin Wall Kimmer coaching tree, and now you're starting your own coaching tree as well. Yes, so we're seeing that. So it's very yeah. yeah we're we're gonna have to actually outline yeah. that. We'll put but yeah, it was like that whole concept of um of how people tend to be connected through one person like there's one key connector who who really just inspires a whole bunch of people and that concept of well think about your friend group and how many of them are actually your friends or how many of them are just oh that's my friend johnny's friend i met all these people who are my friends now through this one person and that one person was the connector um but that's kind of happening i'm seeing it more and more in ecology where there's some key people who all of a sudden have a whole wave of their students or protégés or, or people they worked with that are now entering this this field and um, and making like just that ripple just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So it's cool to see. Awesome. Awesome. Great final thought. Mine is, you know, just being a little reflective uh, or retrospective 
you know, we, we keep talking about how we as professionals can make the circle bigger or even as non-professionals. It's important to, to keep getting more people in, like-minded people and bringing them in so we have more of a more of a culture, more of a community about it. But I can't help to keep thinking back inward to myself saying I, I should be doing more. <laughs> and it's it's funny how like that shifts every now and then. But right now I, I'm very proud of of this podcast and what we've been able to accomplish over three years. And I hope there's more that more things like this that we can do to help reach a, reach a wider audience. So I know uh, I don't know. I just three years is is quite an accomplishment. Yeah. So congratulations. Cool. So. <laughs> thank you. Well, that's going to wrap us Happy up today. Oh, thank yeah. you. Yeah. Thank, thank you. you very much. You need to get us anything. <laughs> just your presence is the present. Yeah. <laughs> so, that's going to wrap us up to, for today. Thank you for joining us. We hope you'd enjoy dissing, uh, listening to Dr. Shevitz. Um, Dr. Shevitz, do you have a, a website or anything that you want to plug here too? This is usually where I have like a little link to your research or, or uh, anything yeah, for you, well, but we forgot I mean, to you ask you. You could always it. go to Kane, and we have our department's website, and I have my own up there as All well. Right. But okay. if anyone wants to reach out to me, it's dshevitz at kane.edu. I'll, I'll list that in the show notes. Yeah. So, so thank you, everyone, for listening to Native Plants Healthy Planet presented by Pylons Nursery. Thank you to the egocentric plastic men for contributing our theme music. Uh, make sure you stream or buy their songs wherever you consume your music. You can follow us on Twitter at Pineland Nursery, Facebook at Pinelands Nursery NJ, Instagram at Pinelands Nursery, or Native Plants underscore Healthy Planet. And you can also follow us at YouTube at Pinelands Nursery. Do not forget about the question and comment line. You can call us at 215-346-6189. I will repeat, 215 215- Three four six six one eight nine. You can call and ask a question or leave a comment, and we will do our best to play it on a future episode of The Buzz and answer your question to the best of our ability. And uh, don't forget about the Native Plants Healthy Planet Facebook group. That community just keeps growing. I think we're almost at 1,600, and uh, the conversations have been great, and I'm really proud of the conversations everyone's been having there. Uh, so you can buy Native Plants Healthy Planet merch at our website, www.nativeplantshealthyplanet.com. I've gotten good at saying that now, friend. I'm really yeah. proud that I don't stutter over it like I used to. I'm going to change but, it. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you can buy that merch right at our website. Uh, there's a link right at the top. takes you to our Teespring store. We do not keep a dime of the profits we make. We give it right back to organizations we feel are doing uh, really good boots on the ground work. We still got to go visit, visit Bowman's Hill with that check we, we have for him. We do. So we'll get out there. Now that now that things are going to start coming up, there's a little more inspiration to go out and visit <laughs> it's Santino. It's a good time to visit. Uh, if it's as long as like, it wasn't like his, uh, him just being him wasn't enough for us. Oh, we it's enough. to see it's something enough. as well. That's <laughs> <laughs> just a little joke, Santino. <laughs> Don't get mad at me. <laughs> but so, like I said, all that money is going to go to those folks at the end of the day. Um, and, you can listen to Native Plants Healthy Planet, uh, again, at our website, but you're probably going to listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, really wherever you consume your podcasts. Do us a favor. Leave a five-star review. Hit subscribe. That goes a long way into getting more people uh, interested in hearing about native plants. Um, with that, thank you, everyone. I'm Tom. And I am Fran. Thank you again, everyone. Dr. Shevitz, thank you so much. We greatly appreciate t- taking time out of your day to spend with us today. What a wonderful conversation. Um, next week, we have a buzz episode, so make sure you tune in for that. And until then, keep it native.
Thank you for listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. Remember to like, share, follow, and comment.